You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 43. Today, we're sitting down with photographic artist, educator, author, speaker, and Canon Explorer of Light, Aaron Babnick, to talk about strategies, tips, and mindsets on how to uncover your inner artist and express yourself creatively through your photography. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I hope your week is off to a great start and thank you for sharing a part of your day with me. Today's episode is brought to you by the Outdoor Photography School Digest. What is that, you ask? Well, it's the newsletter that I send out on the last Friday of the month that contains a summary of all the new OPS content like this podcast, articles, videos, and other tips and resources that I think will help you, whether that's any courses or workshops that I may offer through Outdoor Photography School or from other resources like from some of our guests. We also have a featured photographer whose work I think you would enjoy learning about, and I share any photography or outdoor industry offers or deals that may help you out. I call the OPS Digest your monthly dose of outdoor photography information and inspiration. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy reading, you can sign up for free through the link in the show notes. It is my pleasure to bring you today's guest, Aaron Babnick. Aaron was one of the first photographers I started to follow in my early days of learning landscape photography. She's very prolific in terms of writing, speaking events, interviews, leading workshops, and other forms of photography education. And so my bet is that many of you have already at least heard of Erin in one way or another. And my goal for our interview today was to invite Erin to provide perspectives that she may or may not have shared in other interviews. And it was a really great conversation. Before we dive in, though, let me give you a brief background on Erin. Erin Babnick is known internationally as a leading photographic artist, educator, author, and speaker. She's honored to be a Canon Explorer of Light and is a member of the illustrious nature photography team called Photo Cascadia. Erin's dedication to the medium of photography evolved out of her years in art school and later through a doctoral education in the history of art. In her writing and public speaking, she explores topics with a unique blend of art, historical, philosophical, and instructional ideas, an approach that has made her one of the most highly requested speakers among the current generation of landscape photographers. Erin currently has offices on two continents, using each as a base for traveling worldwide to teach photography workshops and to speak and write about the art of landscape photography. And so without further ado, please enjoy my thought-provoking conversation with Erin Babnick. Erin, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and share your stories and perspectives with our listeners. Really happy to be here, Brenda. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. So anyone who has spent some time in the world of landscape photography has likely come across your incredible work and probably has a good sense of Aaron, the photographer and Aaron, the educator. And so to start our conversation off today, I was hoping we could get a little bit more of a glimpse into Aaron, the person. Okay. I'm happy to do it. Great. So I I understand that you grew up in California and uh, for some time you lived on a boat and were solo traveling by air by the age of five, which is really incredible. I have a three-year-old and I I can't imagine that right now. So how did those early life experiences shape you into who you are today? Wow, I'm super impressed that you must have heard some really old interview that I don't even remember now. um, (laughs) That um, is partially true. I um, 
spent summers living on a boat for a large part of my childhood. That is absolutely true. And um, yeah, that part just kind of got into my head and the rest went out. What, can you repeat the last part of that question? Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so living on a boat and then traveling at an early age by air alone yes. and, and, you know, you're an avid traveler now, obviously. So I'm just curious how that, how that, how those early experiences helped you shape who you are today. I think a lot. It really made me feel kind of more independent. I think that I was being put on a plane uh, basically so that I could go visit my mother who did live full time on a boat. And that's Mm -hmm. why I spent my summers on a boat. Um, And so I was, but actually the part about growing up in California is also only half true because I was born in California and then lived in Michigan for a long time. Um, after my parents got divorced. So flying back and forth between the two. Gotcha. Um, yeah. yeah, really split up my life. But yeah, yeah and, and back in the day, I don't know if they still do this, but if they're putting children on a plane, they would give us this badge. And I had a whole collection of them because I did this so much, but it was this metal pin, big metal pin badge thing. <laughs> it would pin yeah. on the kid and like just drop them on the plane. And so the stewardesses were were always super kind to me and they would recognize the fact that I was traveling alone and I would get all of these airline branded toys and games and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so it, I think it was a positive experience for me. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, And it probably did have an effect on my willingness and kind of excitement about traveling sometimes alone and that feeling of play and creativity that kind of was just sort of baked into my experience as a kid probably translated as well into what I'm doing now. Yeah. And I think also your ability to travel so well and so often, um, which is something I'm not I'm not very skilled at myself. (laughs) I love going to new places, but I I always find it to be so physically draining, uh, especially, you know, going to different continents or different time zones. And and so I'm curious, how do you deal with that constant change? Um, Well, that isn't always easy, but I will say that I do my best to um, be physically prepared for that. So I, I'm very into running when I'm not out hiking in that, um, into doing that sort of stuff that keeps me really physical. And I think that definitely helps. Mm. So to really tire myself out and make sure that I'm as healthy as I can be, I eat pretty well. And that way, when I'm facing a potential bout of jet lag, at least, um, I have these tools to kind of make myself tired, go to sleep <laughs> and deal right. with it. You know? That makes sense. Um, well, as many of the listeners who follow you likely already know, uh, you survived the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history in the Paradise Campfire in, in 2018, Yeah, uh, which I understand happened literally the day after you had just moved into your new home which you also had been, you know, dreaming about and saving up for for over a decade as you were growing your photography business. And so obviously this is an, a devastating and traumatic experience. And yep. I know that the uh, photography community did a great job of rallying behind you and, and helping out in any way they could. Uh, but I'm wondering, what was it like uh to move on from that experience? And, you know, did you ever feel resentful or why is this happening to me? It it seems like you just were able to pick yourself up and and move on. And I'm just wondering, what was that transition like for you? And and how did you, like, what helped you be resilient during that really difficult time? Um, People like you and supporters in the photography community, quite honestly, that that rally did did everything for me. So, um, you know, the Photo Cascadia team being there for me, anyone who just took an interest and was supportive reminded me that I had a reason to keep pushing forward because it was a moment when having the rug pulled out from under me like that, I could, you know, things could have not worked out so well. But I will yeah. say I, I'm still recovering from that. So it's not like that was the most challenging part of it all is that after you know, the world had moved on from the fire. I I was still not in a new home yeah. uh, for years. So it's been, what, three years now since that fire. And I've only just got myself kind of reset up again. And that was 
part of why the pandemic was a, an extraordinarily challenging experience for me early on, because when I was told, you know, time to shelter in place, stay at home orders, all of this, I'm like, okay, but I don't have a home. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, fortunately, I have very supportive family and um, I made I made it work. And, and that really put a fire under me to get set up again. Yeah. But yeah, that was tough. And I'm, I'm now at the point where I'm very, uh, very well set up. So I think I'm in actually in a, an even better place than I would have been with, you know, it's one, it's one of those things where you have, you almost have to make it work out that way. Right. Right. You have yeah. to say, no, this has to be for a reason. It has to be something where I can look back and say, no, this is even better. I'm going to do it even better. Yeah. And so I did. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I can see how some people would just, you know, it almost seems like a cruel joke from the universe or something, the yeah. the timing of it all. And to, to not just feel like it was going to crush their whole future in, yeah. in, in their dreams, you know, and you didn't let it do that, which is really great. Yeah. I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. it yeah. Either that this is going to crush me or this is some kind of opportunity the universe is throwing me and I need to understand what it is and, and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I read your article that you wrote about it um, called Red Dawn in Paradise, which was your account of the whole morning of the wildfire and, and the, your experiences thereafter. And I was just riveted reading it, just, you know, the intensity it just was remarkable. But one thing that stood out to me was that morning when you woke up, you, you know, went through your phone messages and you said that you have a daily reminder of your core values. That's uh, health, accomplishment and service. And so I'm curious, uh, what what do these words mean to you? And do you have any other sort of morning routine things that you would like to share? That's interesting that because I've changed them to health, creativity, education. Oh, nice. <laughs> but interesting. they're basically yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I I used to, um, for that period when I was, um, you know, transitioning and trying to really push and grow my business and be a better person and all of that and going full time with my photography, um, I just totally immersed myself in these very helpful books that recommended, you know, just like keep it to the basics. Like, what do you really want and what do you really value? And that suggestion that you bring it down to three. And uh, I think it's Renee Brown or someone like that who has one of these lists and you can choose. <laughs> yeah. And that was really helpful. So I went through and I just narrowed it down to those three. But what they mean to me, health is comes first. You know, you need to stay healthy to be able to do anything. So that's why I was saying previously, I make a big point of exercising. So mm -hmm. I'm always out running if I'm not hiking or swimming if I can. Yeah. And uh, you know, having a healthy body gives you a healthy mind and gives you the ability to be strong and and be able to accomplish a lot. So yeah. then uh, creativity for me, that was um, so the other one was accomplishment. It's funny because I've, I've forgotten why I exactly changed that. But to me, creativity and accomplishment are very related mm -hmm. because when you're basically you're, you're making something right. Yeah. <laughs> and accomplishment is exactly that. And a creation is an accomplishment. And so when I really thought about that, I'm like, well, it's not just the fact that I've accomplished something. It's something that I've created and that has enabled me to in fuse the element of play and everything that that means to me that I think is so important that life yeah. and all of this should be for happy, joyous, fun reasons. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think uh, there's a little bit of a nuance there in that creativity, you know, suggests more that you are making something versus accomplishment sounds more like you're doing something, not yeah. necessarily making something. Exactly. And like, you're just getting it done. That could be something that someone else sort of puts on you and you accomplish it. And so the, yeah. when I thought about it, I was like, no, it's not quite on the nose of what I'm trying to get at there. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the service part, really what I meant by that or what I was thinking about is, oh, well, that's what I'm doing is, is through my educational efforts. And this to me is really what motivates me in landscape photography. It, it is as corny as it sounds, that notion that I can be making the world a better place mm -hmm. through what I'm doing. Yeah. And even if it's just making someone smile or dream a little bit by looking at one of my photographs, that's 
I've done something that I think is helpful. I put something good out there. Yeah. But also, you know, if I can help people have those experiences of joy, of creativity, of the release that you get, and just the problem solving that you get through being creative, which, which, which is like a exercise for your brain in whatever it is that you do in life. Mm-hmm. So even if someone's a doctor, an engineer or whatever it is, uh, if, you know, if they're a creative person in addition, and it's interesting that many of them are, they tend to do better at, you know, at what they're doing. So, yeah. um, so I felt, I do feel very strongly that, um, that's my job is to get people into that space. So I, I'm not the type of, uh, you know, workshop leader who basically is like, here, there's the mountain, here's the comp, you know, <laughs> which has its utility um, in teaching people in a way. But I much prefer to bring out what it is about each person that they see and, and their own you know, creative sensibilities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we'll get into that in a little bit more uh, shortly. But I, I am curious, who were who some of your early photography influences or sources and for inspiration for your own landscape photography journey? Um, you know, I it sounds weird, but when I re- started out, I was really kind of an island and I didn't really understand photography nearly as well as I do now and the history of it. Mm-hmm. So my exposure to anything visual came through a lifetime in the arts, but in, you know, studio arts and art history, where I was only given a little bit of photography. So actually, my inspiration came not from photography, but from some of these other sources of Mm -hmm. artistic practice, especially what I specialized in when I was working on my dissertation, which is um, Greek art. So Greek sculpture specifically. So I can't look at a tree or a mountain without seeing it as an abstract sculpture in a landscape, you know, oh, interesting. To yeah. Me, they're all sculptural groups, you know, everything in the landscape is a dialogue and that really gets my imagination going. And I find it very inspiring looking at different styles of sculpture. There's the black and white style of Hellenistic sculpture, which is very, very much plays with tones and lights and darks and that sort of thing. I was also very interested in Roman painting and seeing the way that they use colors, especially Mm -hmm. in the more, uh, uh, you know, landscape oriented ones. And all of this was just very influent, I should say, inspirational to me. So I borrowed a lot of ideas from all of that, that I had been taught in my education Uh, And then I started looking at, you know, what was sort of the obvious stuff to start with. So Galen Rowell, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ansel Adams, when I really started getting into photography and looking, you know, what's out there, that's what I was able to find. Because this is before the days of social media, right? Right, yeah. I didn't really have a whole lot to go on there. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, and then eventually when I started um, sharing on forums, I would come across more artwork. Uh, from photographers, the the photo Cascadia guys, of course, mm-hmm. um, and and other people who I credit with really having been very um, innovative and in watershed moments in landscape photography, such as Mark Adamus. I'll give a big shout out to him because yes. I think that um, people will look back on him someday as someone who really changed the course of, of landscape photography to some extent. I really do think he had a real knock-on effect. Yeah. And um, even though I you you would never mistake anything that I'm doing for anything that looks like him, so I, I, it's not that I don't like some of the stuff that he does. It's just that I have different sensibilities, but I very much owe a debt of gratitude to some of his innovations. Yeah, yeah. Like what? What would be an example? Oh, his his willingness to think outside the box with post processing. Yeah, you know the idea that you could even focus stack a landscape was you know maybe not his, but he certainly made it his own, and he brought that into his work in a way that opened up compositional possibilities that just were not reasonable without that technique. Yeah. He also would do slight perspective blends. And, and that sort of thing, which again, just it opens up possibilities, not just for correcting and overcoming the limitations of what lenses can do, 
but also for enabling you to look at the landscape for completely different options compositionally than you would have on offer otherwise. So I think he really blew open the doors of what what kinds of compositions would make sense or would be the sorts of things that you could look for. Yeah, you know, thinking about it with the end result in mind. Yeah. And, and working backwards that way. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not just talking like, you know, low to the ground in your face, focus stacking stuff. There's there's all sorts of things that, uh, well, if there's something near and there's something far, it's not necessarily uh, even a wide angle, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, th- with with that, with with that realization that there's this other way of going about things, you know, when you're visualizing in the field, it's not just visualizing what's it going to look like with different light. You could also visualize, oh, what would it look like if that, all of that could be in focus? Or what would it look like if I could see through the rock and over the rock at the same time? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of, uh, of post-processing techniques and thinking, you know, along those lines, what ways do you think social media and advanced post-processing techniques that we now have available through Photoshop and, and software like that, how do you think that that's influenced the public's, so say non photographers perception of nature and of landscape photography as an art form? Well, I don't think the images themselves do that. I think it's what we say about them. So people are very influenced by what photographers themselves have to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, Guy Tall has probably put this best in an article that he did for On Landscape when he was discussing um the whole topic of manipulation, I think, was that what that was all about. But basically, we've made the world that we live in by setting people's expectations. So I think that seeing really, um, you know, unusual compositions, things that people hadn't seen before, seeing photographers work in types of light that they ordinarily wouldn't because cameras couldn't handle it, um, might grab someone's attention by the very nature of its novelty. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think other than that, it's really going to change anyone's perception of, let's say, oh, the, you know, the question of manipulation, for example, is, is that photoshopped? Well, we put that on people, you know, yeah. and Guy put that very well, is that if you train people to believe that there is something that is this kind of completely objective reality and that the goal of photography is to capture, is to document, you know, is to record, then guess what? That's what they're going to expect. Right. Whereas if you allow that photography can be a creative art, can be, I say, it's not that it necessarily needs to be, that it is, that it can be art at all. Um, you know, that's a different set of expectations. Right. And and with artificial intelligence now sort of being more and more a part of these post-processing tools that we have, do you think that that will play an important role in the creative process in the future, or would it ever get in the way of our creativity, our capacity for it? Um, artificial intelligence, that you mean like the stuff that Photoshop's doing now or can make sand dunes be snowy? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's what art does. It, it marches along and gets, takes turns. And um, I mean, that's really kind of the one, the, if you can say that there's anything constant about art versus craft, it is, it is innovation, ingenuity, surprise, mm. um, you know, reinventing the wheel over and over again, doing things like, you know, when pa- Picasso came out with cubism, everyone was like, what is that? You know, and now we look back and this is, this is something that people really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And it's go- that is going to be the case with all of the arts. You know, none of them just kind of stay firm in one kind of box for long yeah. because that wouldn't, that's not the nature of creativity, you know, is to color within the lines all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, do you think that because photography is uh, a balance between craft and art or technical and creative that we tend to get stuck in the technical box or we can't to kind of put ourselves in that technical box and, you know, tread very carefully into the art box, (laughs) if you will. That's a great question. I actually feel as though, you know, this is 
all relative to the photographer, because some photographers are actually very antagonistic towards even the idea of art. They do not want to be making art. It's not what they see themselves doing. <laughs> so there's no balance necessary. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but for someone who is more artistically inclined, yeah, the technical can get in the way for sure. Yeah. You know, you, it, it can be this, it, it, not only just in the way, but it can kind of um, distract you from what it is that you're doing, which part of this is me. You know, here right. I am standing here. I'm looking at this tree. Um, that tree is is right there and I'm right here. And I've got a camera that has a, just a button on it. And I press that and there's some kind of vision of that tree now in my camera. And like, which part of that is me, right? Mm -hmm. and, and art is all about exactly that question. You know, what do I have to say about all of this? Yeah. And so uh, that that I think is the greatest challenge for a lot of photographers who are inclined towards art. Yeah, But really it's, you know, all of the hand-wringing over that misses the point that I think is most important, which is that art isn't a demonstrable result. It's a process. And, and so long as what you want to do is create art, the, you're there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's saying that to yourself. I, I want to be creative and I want to express myself and how you do that is completely up to you. And and if you start from that point, then you can decide for yourself what sorts of uh, limitations you want to put on your own work and what sorts of, um, you know, expression is most meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. So so one of my questions was going to be, you know, what is art? And, you know, there are all of these really philosophical questions that come up in life that are these three word questions like who am I and what is life and what is art? And so I think what you're saying is that art, we should be thinking of art as a, as a process, as a journey. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly what it is because there yeah. is such a thing. There's such a thing as, as art that doesn't speak to other people. There's mm -hmm. such a thing as art that is celebrated by a, a, a generation and then forgotten by the next or, or just the opposite, you yeah. know, forgotten in one generation, discovered by the next. So it's all relative. There, you can never, there's no litmus test for art. And it's not something that you can really define or pin down. Mm -hmm. But what you can say is that how it differs from craft is that creative input, that process of trying to experiment, to explore, to express yourself that is ongoing. And so it involves not just the artworks themselves, the product, but what happens in between them. The space right. between each photograph is also part of the process. Yeah. And it all relates back to the artist. I mean, mm -hmm. ultimately, that's the difference, right, is the difference yeah. between the artist and what's out there. Yeah. And, and that into going back to what you were saying about the, the space in between, you know, each image that you're creating, for instance, you know, what I was thinking of was, okay, well, what are you learning in that process? What are you developing in your mind and in your creativity in those spaces in between when you go out with your with your camera? That time can be used for practice. You know, I think of um, other art forms like I used to do. Um, I used to play the trumpet and the piano and really it was about practicing you know practicing 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 and then you get to the point of being able to um play a, a piece of music more expressively without thinking about the beats per measure or where your fingers are going on the keys or how you're breathing between measures or, or things like that and i i feel like with photography sometimes we forget that part that in order to get to the the art part of it, the expressive part, the practicing part is just as important. I'm, yes. I'm curious what you, how you feel about I that. I love that. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, that um, reminds me of a book that I was reading recently that went into how um, art education in schools tends to correlate with very successful um, grades and, and accomplishment in other areas of, um, in other academic areas, because that practicing is a rhythmic kind of thing. It's, it's those things that can be repeated, the, the, the patterning of music, the patterning of compositions, 
it, it's a rhythm that kind of keeps you moving forward and um, has this interesting effect on the brain that once once you have the pattern down, you have something that you can now work from or break, right? Yeah. And it's um, it's like the backbone of all that we do, actually, in art is some kind of patterning and how you riff off of that. So yeah. the practice is essential in that regard. Even if you feel like you're just kind of repeating yourself, uh, just working through it, eventually you'll find variations on those themes that are really special. Right. So practice is so important. I, I often say I think it's really important for an artist to be a really productive artist, to be practicing, to be working as much as possible, but that doesn't mean you have to share it all. <laughs> so you right. don't have to have that pressure on yourself that while you're practicing, everything that you produce must go on to Instagram. Right. Far from it. <laughs> yeah. Not everything needs to be a performance. Yeah. Uh, therefore I mean, it's practice. That's where people I think get really kind of, kind of hung up as like, oh my God, I just produced something that I don't even like. That's probably good. You know, right. <laughs> you were out yeah. there doing something. Yeah. Keep at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, that kind of brings me to another question I had, which is this concept of external validation or recognition of your work. Um, and whether that's from peers or mentors as a way of knowing or, or getting an understanding of whether we've created something compelling or meaningful or not. And I, I guess I'm coming at this from, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, if I'm the artist, the photographer, the creator, I'm expressing myself in the image somehow. And, and so really, I'm just creating that for me. But mm -hmm. how do I know, even if I like it, <laughs> do is there some degree of external validation that's helpful, especially in the learning process when when people are trying to make better compositions? That feedback, I would think, is is good and and helpful, but does that get in the way of being just openly creative as well? You know, I actually feel as though it's a necessary evil. Yeah, because one of the things that tends to be kind of universal with artists is this sense of not being happy with the results in some way, shape, or form that pushes you forward. Because if you're always just content, you're always producing something that you always like and that you know everyone else is going to like, like what's the point? Mm -hmm. And and that gets boring for people. It yeah. just gets to be, why am I even doing this? You know, And it's more so that feeling of wanting to overcome some either creative block or some something that makes you want to work harder and try harder that makes you push through into some creative breakthrough. So you kind of need that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you can maybe put that on, you definitely can put that on yourself, but validation will get it, get you there also pretty quickly. Of course, the slippery slope of that is when you get away from yourself, when you let it right. pull you away from what it is that you really enjoy doing. And there are so many ways that that can happen. Um, you know, you can, there are definitely those voices, uh, you know, on out there, online, wherever, that can distract you from what it is that you really like. In fact, some people will even tell you, you shouldn't like that because too many people like that. You know, even, even that, I mean, they're just, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it depends on who you're listening to and who you respect. And it, it's like watching Wimbledon sometimes, you know, the right. ball going back and forth. I should do that. I shouldn't do that. I should. Oh, no, wait. You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and in the end, you really just have to decide what's fun for you and what are you enjoying. But that tension there, that you haven't quite got it right or you haven't gotten it right in a while <laughs> yeah. will keep you moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, some people just absolutely hate getting, uh, you know, external feedback on their images because it makes them uncomfortable or it makes it feel too vulnerable. Um, and other people, I think, can go in the opposite direction where that's what all they're seeking and they're trying to tick the boxes and get the likes or whatever. And and that can, like you were saying, stifle personal growth yeah. um, in your own work. Well, and I will say this with regards to critique specifically, when you're putting your work out there, that you definitely, depending on how close you are to it, how hard you worked for it, how excited you are by it, you know, 
you can definitely get a shock to the system when you find out that you're not seeing things the same way that other people are. Yeah. Especially when you're first starting out. But it can be incredibly helpful to understand that disconnect and just to see where it lies and how that works. Yeah. So I feel as though anybody who is just kind of getting into photography, even if it's someone like me who's been in the arts your entire life, but you know, you picked up something that you weren't doing before. So for me, when I got into photography, I came from, I was a painter, I was a graphic designer, did a you know PhD education in uh, art history. So uh, on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> but photography is a whole other thing, really, in a lot of ways. So um, when I first got into it, the, I, I did seek out any kind of feedback that I could get. And I was very happy when, uh, right before I went full time, there was this Facebook group that a friend had decided to start for feedback. It was called LPR, Landscape Photography Review. And there were about 30 of us at first who, in the end, it turns out a, most, a large percentage of us ended up going full time with our photography. And a lot of those people in that group are now the names that everyone will know in landscape photography. So it was this kind of really special um, little melting pot of creative laboratory of yeah. people sharing their images. It was meant for critique. And I really feel like we all grew a ton from that until yeah. we didn't. And then it stopped. You know, yeah. and like I became an admin of the group and I was really involved in it. There were three of us who were admins, I think. And and after a while, re we realized it had run its course. And we had all because we were all kind of like in that same sort of generation of landscape photographers coming up at the time and all at that point starting to make names for ourselves and everything. But, it, you know, at, at a certain point, you realize that you have gotten a lot of value out of that. You really see how a, a wide variety of people see and, mm -hmm. and where the sort of some of the commonalities are. And you can decide whether or not that is helpful, you know, as how strongly do I feel about what I'm doing if mm -hmm. a lot of people don't want to go that direction or themselves, you know, it, it can help you either kind of rethink what you're doing or it can help you kind of dig in and commit harder to it. Right. Yeah, Either way, that's a helpful. great point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what you were saying earlier about filling uh, filling in the gap or bridging the gap somehow between, you know, if, if you're creating something that you love and the feedback that you get from it is a little lukewarm, <laughs> say, uh, what does that mean? You know, what? why is that? Um, I've had that experience before where I'll, I'll have some, you know, images that are my absolute favorites. And those are not the ones that will like I'll sell prints of. And I'm always perplexed because like the ones that will people will buy prints of are I don't even think are nearly my best images. <laughs> yeah, it's classic. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, why? And I'm always I, I don't have an answer to that. I am still curious, but it, I, it gives me pause to think, OK, well, there's something that's appealing to them in this. And and maybe it's that, you know, the, my favorite images, I I know my intimate story of creating that photo more than the viewer does. And, and maybe there's that subjectiveness to it or there's some aesthetic in the ones that sell versus the ones that I I feel more closely to. I, I don't really know. But I think teasing apart those things and trying to understand that better can help inform how, how you go forward in your creativity, I think. That is such a good point. And I'm glad you said that because I that another topic that this actually brings up for me is the end use of art. So you specified print purchases. Mm -hmm. You know, not all images work as domestic decoration. They right. just don't. You know? yeah. <laughs> In fact, what tends to work best for that are the small scenes mm -hmm. or abstracts. You know, they, they, they just sort of blend in. They don't demand too much attention. It's the rare space where Mordor really works well, you know, so yes. you got, you know, really intense, epic kind of landscape scene. Um, but the really, really quiet stuff tends to blend in more nicely and just sort of feel comforting and peaceful inside a home mm -hmm. or an office, you know, right. <laughs> or a hotel or wherever, right. you know, people tend to buy prints. Uh, hang prints. But 
Then there's the museum space. I actually have a whole article on this. And that's where, what what is the museum space for? That's where images, artworks are there to really to inspire discourse, to get people talking. Mm. It's a whole other use of the image. And of course, there are a million other things that images could go into if you include the whole commercial realm and, you know, stock and that sort of thing. Right. So whether or not an image is successful um, really is relative to its end use. And I, I tend to be very interested in those images, the ones that are just outright sublime, that a little bit scary, that not very many people would want to live with. <laughs> and, I, you know, but they make me think, they get my imagination going. I want to talk about them. I love those. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody does, though. A lot of people, they just want to see something that makes them feel warm and happy and fuzzy. Right. Yeah, you know, like snowy scenes don't sell really well for mm-hmm. home nope. <laughs> home uh, images. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so with that in mind, um, what would you say makes a great photograph? And is that sort of an impossible question in that it depends on its final purpose? Or well, can we yeah. can we make some conclusions about what would make, you know, what, what ingredients a good photograph needs in order to be compelling? I, I think... For me, at its simplest, a great photograph shows me something that I don't feel that I've seen before. And that's pretty subjective and vague. But that that's what, you know, for me, it's not enough that, that it's great light and uh, it's an interesting composition. Although that can be a good photograph. That can be a compelling photograph. I like a really great one is, is one that shows me something where I feel like that I don't feel like I've seen that before. You know, it's, I feel like I'm seeing the artist. I'm seeing beyond this place Mm -hmm. into a person who saw something. Yeah. They saw something that maybe I wouldn't have seen, or they just saw it in a way that makes me dream a little, Mm -hmm. you know, makes me stop and and realize that I'm seeing the product of someone who, who saw something. And that doesn't mean that, It couldn't have something that in it like a mountain that someone might think is obvious. You know, it could be something about the combination of the conditions and the composition, you know, that brings about that feeling. Um, There's a there's a there's a lot of talk these days about grand landscapes and and, uh, it's not all very favorable. I think Mm. that people have gotten this really unhealthy idea that every grand landscape is is obvious and um, uh, not mysterious and, <laughs> and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, y- the mystery lies in the way that you time things, the way that you, um, the way that you play with light and shadow and atmosphere and, and all of that. Sometimes you can look at something and you feel like it could even be a place that you have seen many times and think like, I'm seeing it anew. Mm-hmm. that's a great photograph. Yeah. And so how are you portraying that in your images? Would you say, you, you know, I t- you were talking about light and atmosphere and interplay with contrast and, and tones and things like that. But when, when you're at a location and you're looking for compositions, how do you get from there arriving to I've found something that's drawing me into the scene and I, I'm, I'm figuring out how I want to express this in a photograph. One word, stories. Mm, so I tell. have several mm. articles on this. Um, I think the largest of them might be the one in either an outdoor photographer or uh, Elements magazine. But this comes from my background with sculpture and, and seeing elements in a landscape as protagonists, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, characters in, in stories. And I cannot unthink that. That is just my, my way of approaching a scene. I, I see it no matter what I'm doing. And when suddenly my imagination starts going and I'm hearing dialogues or imagining dialogues or imagining scenarios or metaphors, I know I'm onto something. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't say that I definitely cannot say that every time I go out, that's happening for me. Right. But when something's happening and I know that I, I, you know, I've got that little feeling like, oh, this is exciting. It's usually because of that. You know, it's not just that, oh, the sky is red. 
or something like that. Right. Um, and, but, you know, sometimes it all just comes together and it really hums on that metaphorical or story level. And, and so I love that. And if I'm struggling a little bit with a composition, I'm out there, I'm like, mm, you know, like this composition formally, because I do approach things that way too. That's my other way in. Mm-hmm. Just for pure form. What, what do I think about this on for, in formalistic terms? What is it compositionally that really I think is exciting and that I've worked out? Um, but to me, it's not just that. It's not just the light. Got to have that story, but if I, you know, if I need a way in, uh, I and I'm not really seeing the the composition. Sometimes the story will give it to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what are the types of stories that you that you find? Well, like for example, just this morning I posted a photo to Instagram uh, of these very colorful badlands on this very steep slope, and it's really interesting how there's this scarlet, almost like scarlet orange. Uh, soil that just almost abruptly ends where these stripes of very multicolored stripes of the Badlands start. And right almost on the threshold of that transition is this lone little tree. And to me, uh, I I was out there with two cameras photographing because I knew that I had a small window of time and I was going to have kind of long exposures. So I had two tripods set up so I could work a couple different ideas at once. Mm-hmm. And of, of the four that I was able to work with in that time, uh, this was the clear favorite for me because of the way that that little tree suggested a story for me. And it was like, well, is it is this little tree emerging out of that craziness of all the stripes on the Badlands? Has it just sort of gone through this crazy thing and it and it made it out, or is it con- is it pondering going down into it, mm. is it standing <laughs> on the edge and thinking? I'm going in. <laughs> and so, you know, neither one is the right answer, but it, anything that kind of gets my imagination going like that. Yeah. And also in this scene, there's this little dead tree just opposite. It's amazing how they kind of line up and, and it's just below that threshold and it doesn't have any foliage on it anymore. And it's just, you know, the roots and the branches of it. And, you know, it makes me wonder, well, what's its story? Is it a premonition of what's going to happen if the right. little, if our character goes down there? <laughs> He's or saying, is, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> or, or was that its past and now having risen beyond the craziness, you know, it has right. emerged with fully, you know, it's, I love that. I love just sort of pondering these things. And I even said in my caption, if, if all you're looking at when you're photographing or if all you're seeing is a location, you're missing a huge part of the fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love getting a glimpse into, you know, what's going on in your mind when you're creating these types of images. I just pulled it up on Instagram. It's really, really, uh, really neat. I love the stripes and Thanks. the contrast between the colors of the the stripes on the bottom half and the, you know, bright orangey red on the top. Yeah, and crazy. I, yeah. Just that line. And then you know, you're right. The, the little tree, this looks like it's sort of teetering there yeah. in, in a moment of indecision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like that looks kind of fun, but also kind of crazy. I'm not sure I want to do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think I feel like that tree often. I I, I often find myself in that place of indecision being like, what do I do? I don't know. This feels safe here, but that looks exciting. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't even have to be a, a scene where there is a subject even. So even when you are looking at uh, patterning, for example, sometimes it's suggestive of something that it's not, and that gives you your story. So when I'm composing, I'm like, oh, that kind of looks like, let's say, snakeskin. How can I make it look more like snakeskin and less mm-hmm. like mud tiles or whatever? Right. And that will help me hone in the composition. To me, any of those, those, it looks like it means it seems like those, those similes and metaphors are all in the story realm. I just sort of use story as a term of convenience for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And are you ever, um, well, maybe you are in how you're answering these questions, but, uh, you know, for people who talk about expressive photography, where they're trying to express something from the landscape, or they're trying to express something from themselves through the landscape, I guess I'm wondering the role of story here sounds like, you know, you're making up a story about the landscape. That's how how you're sort of infusing yourself into that. But do you ever find that you're expressing yourself your your own personal story through a landscape photo too like 
if you're feeling really emotionally bright and happy that day, you're going to migrate towards more vibrant colors. Or if you're feeling more dark and gloomy, you're going to maybe do something in black and white. I mean, does that ever influence how you're creating your oh, images? hundred percent. I mean, in fact, my first ever article on this topic, how landscape photographs tell stories, I, I say that there are actually three different ways of telling stories. And one of them is the personal story. And sometimes my story is seems so embedded in that one that I've just imagined for the tree or whatever, you know, that it it's really that is coming from my own experiences, right? That's why I'm projecting myself onto yeah. that landscape very much so. Um, but also, for example, we talked about the fire and how devastating that was to me. People uh, asked me in interviews after that, how has that changed, if anything, the way that you're working in the field? And ironically, rather than it making me go to some super, I don't know, dark or different place or taking a turn or something like that right away, what it actually made me do was double down on who I was because I had lost pretty much everything that reminded me of who I was yeah. <laughs> and lost everything I owned almost. And I felt this need to go back and do Aaron some more, you know, just yeah. go outside and do Aaron. And right. so I found myself returning to places I knew well, returning to the sorts of compositional solutions that I was known for. And just like, I just need to be me and just do that for a while. Yeah. And so I feel that that's one way of expressing yourself is having these touchstones that you identify with and just working through them, you know, creativity is a messy place. And there's, there's like, like I said, no way to have some kind of litmus test on whether or not you've produced art. And there's also no way to say how much of yourself is actually the photograph or what, or how much of yourself is actually in it. Mm -hmm. But you, you know, when you look at a photograph, you feel yeah, I, I see me in that. I I, yeah. I see my thoughts and my something about my approach. And, and those are the ones that I tend to prefer and actually process and share with people. Right. Yeah. So what, when you're creating an image, when do you feel like you've got it? Is it is it right at the time of, of snapping the shutter or is it after it's been post-processed and and then you sort of are done with it at that point? Um, that's a good question. I, I once had someone say to me that he had a theory that really good photos are the ones that you know it right when you took it. And that, and I said, I thought to myself, well, a lot of the time that is correct. And other times it's not because when you're in that space, you're like, I know, I know this one I'm going to like. Um, it could be because you just think other people are going to like it, yeah. you know, and maybe what you've just produced is something. Yeah, that's going to be that's going to do great on Instagram, you know, right. and and you but in the end, you feel like, but I haven't really sort of pushed the envelope with that or, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm kind of riffing off of myself. So sometimes that you don't know because it you you're experimenting you're trying something new and right. it does look weird and yeah. <laughs> I, and those are actually a little bit more interesting and then you bring them home and you think about them and then you work on them and you process it and you think some more and then you print it and you hang it up and you're like yeah this is i just turned a corner that i, I actually yep yep i like it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the opposite, like no, that was a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not a waste, but you know, not yeah, right, not right. a keeper or something, but but still <laughs> valuable. <laughs> yeah. Just a step in another direction, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so it sounds like curiosity uh, plays often in your process, and so I'm wondering, you know, what role do you think curiosity plays in, in creativity, and is that something that for people who aren't naturally curious, is that something that they could cultivate? Do you think? curiosity is the key to creativity, you know, um, and I, I, that's why I often say exploration because it's the same thing as curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, the more that you find a photograph, the more that you find yourself. So you need to go out and be curious. And that doesn't mean that you should work away from things that you think have been done already before, because if you're attracted to them and that, that seems interesting to you or you like it, that tells you something about you. So you work through it and you just keep going and get curious about what would happen if. Yeah. 
you know, what if I did that, but then I did this? Or what if I did that idea, but in this place? Or what if I did this place, but with that other idea? And and pretty soon you start putting these things all together in your own way. Yeah. Do you approach your post-processing that way too? Yeah, my post-processing, you know, that's something that I truly believe is a huge outlet for creativity. I think it's really important. And a lot of people poo-poo it and underplay the the power of even like subtle changes in post-processing. Um, but I believe that those are the people who really are kind of antagonistic towards the idea of art. Mm. So for me, post-processing is uh, a playground. It's, it's a place to, you know, what if I just made the whole thing blue? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it wasn't blue, but what if I made it blue? You know, um, I, I love... I, I love playing around with it. Sometimes I don't. I, I love more being outside. You know, a lot right. of times I'll yeah. just, my images will pile up. And I don't feel like sitting in a chair and working on them. Yeah. You know, in the end, I'm a real mountain goat and I'm ha- at absolutely my at my happiest when I'm out there running around, you know, with my camera. But yeah. uh, I think that it's important to also consider what post-processing can do to infuse a little more of yourself into the image and bring out those ideas that you had in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Well, so before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? What's a lightning round? Uh, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions and you just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. I should take some more coffee so I don't just <laughs> um my way through it. And you're, th- This usually doesn't work out well for me, but we'll try it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, first, the first question hopefully is easy. Uh, what is your favorite meal to get in the Dolomites? Probably this purple risotto that mm. they have. And I'm forgetting now what makes it purple, but it's so good. I mean, it's not just that I love purple. <laughs> My <laughs> reputation precedes me in that regard, but yeah, it's don't really worry. good. Yeah. Is, is it beets by chance? It, yeah, it might be beets. Yeah, yeah. It's probably the beet risotto. It's so good. It is really good. I, I have been to the Dolomites once and um, I remember being up in one of those refugios and getting some beet raviolis. Uh, yeah. they're really good. Yeah. That too is awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's more of a pinkish reddish. This is this purple. It's got some cheese in there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Does sound good. Um, what is your least favorite saying in photography? Uh, get it right in camera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why, why is that your least favorite? Um, because it is, it implies that there's such a thing as right. Yeah. Yep. Um, center- I'm good at this so far, huh? I didn't yeah, you are. Once. See? <laughs> <laughs> You'll trip me up. Keep going. Uh, center column or no center column? Both. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I have uh, both kinds of tripods. Uh, no center column is, is good to keep weight down, but all I will say it's very fussy when you're on a slope or something and you just need to be a little bit higher and not change anything else to have to mess with all three legs to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, what do you do in your downtime? I like to run and I also like to hike even without my camera. Mm-hmm. I like to get outdoors and swim, hang out with friends, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's good. So you spend a lot of time exploring the wilderness. Uh, what's one piece of safety advice that you can give someone who wants to start to explore more remote and wild areas? Do your homework. Understand the place before you, you go into it for safety reasons. Yeah, it's helpful to know what you're dealing with out there and how to be prepared. In terms of like weather and terrain and that sort of thing? All of that. What critters yeah. are out there? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Is it near civilization? Should you be worried about the two-legged variety? Everything. Yeah. Yep. Good. So final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? It means a lot. There's where I think you you trip me up because mm-hmm. I can't, it's hard for me to package that. Yeah. But for me, it means celebrating the idea of nature and not coordinates. I will say that much. I mm-hmm. truly believe in la- landscape over location. So it does not mean locations. To me, it means nature and all of its beauty and the ideas that it suggests. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been so much fun. I, I really enjoy chatting with you and hearing. I, I love the 
energy and enthusiasm that you bring to your your interviews and your speaking and all of that. So thank you again for being on the show. And um, if people wanted to to see more of your photography or learn about your workshops, and I understand you have a new book out. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to talk about that, what are what are some of the best ways for people to find you? Uh, you can find all of that on Aaron, at com, And I would also direct people to photocascadia.com. That's the seven person nature photography team that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. And you can find more about all of the things, including the books. We have another book coming out soon. So get on my newsletter if you want to be among the first to know about what's coming next. All right. Excellent. Well, I will put all those links in the show notes as well. And uh, thank you again for coming on today. I really, really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Brenda. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Erin Babnick. And again, you can find out more about her photography, writing and workshops at erinbabnick.com and about her collaborative work and educational resources with Photo Cascadia at photocascadia.com. Thank you again, Erin, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's discussion. If you haven't checked out our podcast website yet, you can find it at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. There you can listen to all of the episodes, follow or share the podcast with one click, find the detailed show notes and profiles on our guests, ask a question for Tidbit Tuesday, and support the show through the Buy Me a Coffee link or by leaving a review. And thank you to everyone who has shown their support so far. It is all making a huge difference. In our next interview episode in a couple of weeks, we'll have award-winning freelance photographer, workshop leader, and inspirational speaker, John Barclay, on the show to talk about creating personally meaningful and expressive images. And I'll be back here next week with a special Tidbit Tuesday episode. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.